And, and Wellington would be after, after I'll, I'll mention it, I'll mention it. Just, just want to write that down. That's all, that's all I need to write. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'd like to make an announcement about an event in New Zealand I'm organizing. Uh, I did one last year with Professor Fekata and the assistant professors Sandy, Rudy, um, and I'm doing another one this year. And this year, last year the, the, the theme was sound money, sound and unsound money. Uh, and there were 10 lectures in five days. Same format for this year. But this year the theme is just gold. So we're working through uh, both theoretical and practical uh, sessions on gold. And um, the professor will give one lecture per day. And the other five lectures will be a combination of Sandeep, uh, hopefully Rudy, Keith, who's not here, um, Peter maybe, and me. And I plan to give two. One theoretical and one very practical. Uh, we have some sponsors, and um, with the sponsors, we're going to organize some additional events around that week. I want the industry to participate. I want the investment industry to participate. So we're going to organize a cocktail reception in Auckland during the week. Everybody will come, have a drink, free drink, and hear the professor 10-15 minutes, then be blown away, right? <laughs> Um, and in Wellington, I'm organizing a debate with the uh, central bank. Uh, and again, to attract the industry. And so all this in New Zealand. So the debate with the central bank will be in Wellington, different cities. So it will be either the week before or the week after, I don't know yet. Okay? Um, so if you can come to New Zealand, <laughs> I know it's a long way away. It's just two flights, 12 hours each. <laughs> Thank you. And if you yeah, if you're interested, just uh, let me know and I'll give me your email and I'll. And if you have never been to. Oh, sorry. Marketing. <laughs> uh, last year, Rudy recorded all the sessions, like he does uh, any uh, of the uh, new Austrian School of Economics uh, courses. So it's available, and uh, if you missed last year, you can come this year, you, won't have, have you don't need to have come last year, they're independent, uh, but you can buy the uh, DVDs from Rudy. How much? That's negotiate. Negotiable. Bid offer. Bid offer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <coughs> and if you have never been to New Zealand, we can very, very highly recommend it. Wonderful country. And, uh, it's a different lifestyle as if uh, you went back in time. And uh, we enjoyed our visit to New Zealand. 
Brilliant. Okay, um, so today, uh, it's not in your notes, but I talked about it briefly. We're going to be talking about the bid and the offer on the gold bond. And, um, yeah, no doubt will be a very interesting talk. So, over to Professor. Thank you, Sandy. <coughs> As uh, Sandy pointed out, you don't have a handout, the print, uh, but it is coming, so I will put it on my website as soon as it's available. At this point, I cannot commit myself to dates, but hopefully later this year. And uh, then you can download it and read it again and have something permanent in your files on this. I would uh, like to go back just very briefly for the previous lecture yesterday where we discussed the uh, this equilibrium theory of price and how the instead of the one monolithic price of the equilibrium theory we have two the lower bid and the higher ask price and we went through what follows from this and it's a complicated story I agree and it's marginal to our main theme which is the origin of interest in this course but I thought that might as well include it in, in its entirety even though we won't need in the rest of the course such concepts as straddle but spread we always need spread is a very basic thing uh, in any kind of Mangarian economics, very basic, there's no way, but straddle and two-legged and four-legged, etc., et we won't need here. But I thought I would give you that chapter in its entirety because it helps you understand what a tremendous extension of price theory opens up once you pass to Menger's basic idea of this equilibrium from equilibrium. It's a tremendous revolution and it opens up this avenue and I think the surface has scarcely been scratched in as far as the mainstream economics and also to some extent even the Austrian school hasn't done its proper job to at least point to the direction that this is not an unfinished story there's so much to add and uh, I'm just trying in my own uh, small ways to nudge <laughs> the Austrians, not with a great deal of success, I must, must say, 
in that direction. So I hope it did help you a little to at least see the possibilities. But all we need from that chapter for the continuation is uh, just a very small idea but with tremendous consequences that exactly the same way as in the commodity markets there are these bid-ask prices and, straddles, uh, and uh, sorry, spreads the same way we have the bond market and again there will be a lower bid price for the bond and a higher ask price. Now I'm not going to keep saying gold bond because it's understood that we are considering only gold bonds in the rest of the course. And bond in the irredeemable currency system is a contradiction in terms. You see, bond is called a bond because it bonds the hands of the borrower, the issuer of the bond. Literally, in a, to some extent, he becomes less free after issuing the bond. Now, under the present monetary system, say the dollar system, you see a bond is an irredeemable bond. Now, of course, a lot of mainstream econo econ economists who up in arms that this is outrageous to say such a thing. After all, the bond at maturity can be redeemed get the dollars and you can spend the dollars. But at the bottom, the dollar is irredeemable. It cannot be exchanged for anything but another paper dollar. Or a bond. But you see, an irredeemable currency, the dollar, is exchanged for a bond which in turn matures in the irredeemable currency. So that makes the bond itself irredeemable because this is a check kiting scheme. There is the Treasury, the US Treasury, there's the Federal Reserve, and they are in business of check kiting, which is legalized. If you do check kiting, you'll get arrested and it's a criminal offense. But if the government does it, or two government departments, and I think they also allow now the banks too, the big banks, uh, which are insolvent, the way they can keep the game going is this check-kiting scheme. One big bank, call it A, issues a lot of unbacked checks. 
and it goes to clearing through the bank B, another big bank. And that also issues a lot of unbacked checks uh, and sends it to A. And, you know, exchanging these uh, vacant checks or unbacked checks, they can keep the game going. But that's criminal activity according to the original code, which now, it seems to me, I cannot prove it, but seems to me the government or uh, bank inspectors and uh, uh, various regulate, uh, regulatory agencies turn the other way. See evil, speak evil, uh, speak no evil, <laughs> see no evil, which is, which is what keeps the game of musical chairs going. So I, this is just a side remark. Uh, uh, a bond in the present monetary system is a joke, nothing more, which can mesmerize people and divert their attention from the fact that we are running on empty. We are driving a truck with an empty tank, no fuel. There's a little bit of momentum which keeps us going, but uh, we either end up in a ditch or we just run out of fuel and then that's in the middle of nowhere and that's a problem. But this is not my topic. I'm just warning you that whenever I say bond, it is a gold bond. It's denominated in gold units and interest is being paid in gold. And that's very important to see. All right, so there is a market for gold bonds. And in this market, just like in a commodity market, there will be a lower bid price <coughs> and a higher ask price. Now remember yesterday we talked about this and this was one of the highlights. Perhaps <laughs> I gave you too many ideas and this point got lost a little bit. So let me just point out that this is very important that an entirely different set of forces form the ice price. And another set of forces and conditions will form the bid price. And that in itself shows the power of the disequilibrium theory because all this gets lost in the equilibrium theory, where there's just one monolithic price, where the two curves, the demand and uh, supply curve, intersect. That's it. And, and according to this theory, which is an oversimplification, not to say uh, a false representation, of reality is the fact that there's just the one monolithic price. 
But in fact, I mean, nobody can deny that uh, there are two prices. The uh, top is the ask price, the bottom bid price. Nobody can deny that. But of course, you can de-emphasize that like the mainstream economists do. But if you put these ideas, ask price, bid price, in their proper place, and you do not try to suppress that fact, then all this new uh, theory opens up, and uh, you can draw all the consequences. So, finishing my thought, going back to yesterday's lecture, this is very important to see that one set of forces and circumstances determine the ask price and then completely different set and circumstances determine the bid price. And then you have to study these separately on their own merit and discover wonderful things which you could not see under the model of the equilibrium theory, the supply-demand equilibrium of uh, price. So this is the same here. We are going to study the rate of interest and we'll discover that in reality it's not one rate of interest but it's two just like the price is not monolithic but there is an ask and a bid price the same way when it comes to the rate of interest we have to see that there's no such a thing as a monolithic interest rate but there will be, in fact, a ceiling and there will be a floor. And just like in the markets, exchange takes place between these two extremes, the ask price and bid price, you know, anywhere in between. The same way, uh, bonds uh, can be floated and uh, contracts can be made at rates, various rates of interest, but they, the, all these rates will fall in a range and the range is determined by the floor and by the ceiling. Now, this is the difficulty, especially for those who are not, uh, <laughs> shall we say, funds of mathematics, that the uh, relationship is inverse. So you have to remember when you uh, talk about these things that we have defined the rate of interest in terms of the bond price. This bond equation, which we have never written down, and uh, 
we don't want to discourage people who uh, are not fans of mathematics. Uh, it's enough to know that the two move inversely, the bond price on the one hand and the rate of interest. This means that <coughs> as the rate of interest rises, the bond price falls. And conversely, as the rate of interest falls, the bond price rises. And the initiative could come from the other side. If it's the bond price which leads, then a falling bond price means rising interest and vice versa. I don't know if there's need to give examples of this inverse relationship. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but uh, this is non-controversial. Go to any broker who is selling bonds or stocks or what have you, and they are all familiar with this. And, uh, and I, I'm, I'm amused reading the New York Times business page uh, when every day it brings the uh, results of the bond trading of the previous day, but that's not just bonds, but notes and bills, which are shorter term instruments, also having a yield and therefore rate of interest involved. The interesting thing is that every time they make a quote, say how the bond price changed, for instance, New York Times reports the uh, uh, the bond price went up by such such a percent, uh, say two percent, and then in the same sentence they say the bond price comma which varies inversely. That's not the word the New York Times would use, <laughs> which, which varies, opposite. moves in the opposite direction to the rate of interest, to yield, you see, and then goes on what was the change yesterday. And they do it every single day, rather than uh, just uh, teaching in schools, every kid at one point, so it would be so natural as the fact that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. You know, every day, to my mind, that's what it looks that the New York Times says, today the sun rose at seven hour and five minutes, and then in a parenthesis they will say, and it did do it in the east, and the sun is going to set at such and such an hour, in parenthesis, in the west, every single day. Well, what's the point of repeat? Rather, give a good education to the children and tell them that there is an inverse relationship between the yield 
and the bond price or the note price or the bill price and then you don't have to print it out every single day but that's the way it is you know this is of course uh, <coughs> a re reflection on our educational system now it may be accidental it may be uh, on, on a purpose I don't know but that's the way it is and it's a very foolish way alright so we have then the range between the top ask price and the bottom bid price on the one hand and corresponding to it we have the range between the ceiling of interest rates and the floor and there is a movement between these two and the movement is always the opposite you see it's always the opposite that's a very strict rule no exceptions so it's a natural law you might say all right Now, I made a big point that <coughs> these two, the ceiling and the floor, are formed by various forces, various conditions and they are different this I think I cannot overemphasize that the forces and the circumstances which bring about the ceiling of the range of interest is different from the forces and conditions which form the bottom which we call the floor ceiling floor and we shall now go and analyze what are these forces and what are these circumstances so now I need okay we can continue here Just please draw a horizontal line Okay, and what this represents is the bondholders, the bondholders, but we rank them, could you write that, bondholders, we line up all the bondholders, but we rank them, and I, I would like to ask you, uh, what do you think? How do we rank the bondholders? No? We rank them by time preference using the uh, Austrian terminology. But I'm sure uh, mainstream economists, uh, this is a term borrowed from 
um, Austrian economics, a mainstream economist would not use such a word as time preference because that's below their dignity. They would use something like risk aversion or, or something, but that's not important. Okay, so here at this extreme you would find those bondholders who are very happy with the rate of interest they are getting. You know, I, I would say, for example, insurance companies, pension funds uh, are very happy. But because, after all, it's not their benefit to their benefit, it's the benefit of the pensioner. And as you go to the left, to the other extreme, you will find those bondholders who are ever more uh, dissatisfied. They don't find the rate of interest to their liking because it's, they find it too low. And uh, they try to resist if they can. Try to fight back. Try to uh, put their uh, argument that this is uneconomical. For instance, pensioners or depositors in a savings account I mean, sometimes, especially nowadays, they pay actually ridiculously low interest rates, which fraction fraction of one percent. It's not. Uh,